Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tom Monroe and Kate Norris. We're at the Southeast Wine Collective in Portland. It's February 14, 2020. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to both of you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Uh, first question, most important question for each of you. Uh, why wine? Oh. Uh, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Go for it. Um, wine's always been on the table in my life. Uh, I uh, grew up at, mostly in Europe with a mom that's from Madagascar, but of French nationality, and a British father. And um, wine has been a part of our family celebrations, but also our everyday since I can remember. Uh, thimbles of it, or it watered down with water when I was very, very small. Uh, no stigma behind alcohol, having grown up in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's something that's really delicious that you share. Uh, it's uh, something to be enjoyed and celebrated. It's a really happy medium to work with. Uh, it brings an immense amount of joy. Um, and it's uh, a really beautiful, I don't know, uh, translation of our earth at the same time. So it's a combination of all things, art, science, personal feelings, taste fashion, all everything wrapped into one. Um, so, yeah, that's why for me. Um, so I grew up in the, in the Midwest in St. Louis, and um, my father was always had wine on the table too. I wouldn't say it was, you know, maybe wines that have as much artisan focus as that we have, because that just really wasn't what was available. And, St. Louis in the early 1980s. But he always enjoyed having wine around. And then my uncle, um, who was a little younger than my dad, kind of got tied up with a group of other wine aficionados in St. Louis that were really into Burgundy wines. And they started um, traveling together as a group. Uh, and as I got a little bit older, a few times, I you know was invited over to be like the glass buffer and the you know cork puller kind of uh, for these guys and you get a couple of sips of things there and it, at that point I don't really have any like recollection of saying oh I like wine but the the culture of it and the camaraderie that is brought um, was something that was immediately attractive and really kind of picked up for me uh, when I was in uh, college I took some I was a business major and I took some restaurant tourism kind of hospitality classes that included what might be today like a W set type class mm -hmm. and drinking in college paying, much paying good, them yeah, to drink in college got it <laughs> on like a Thursday afternoon to sample wine I think they still have these classes everywhere yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, after that, just through friendships uh, and the people that I both worked and just kind of hung around, it just became a, more a part of life and something that, like Kate was saying, that I felt was a celebration of how we communicate and... and um, it's good know, speed, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it really <laughs> breaks down a lot of barriers mm -hmm. to be able to spend time with the people and 
and learn about not only the wines but you know about other other people and I think maybe something we should do more of. Mm -hmm. So each of you had this kind of natural inclination toward it. Tell me about how it became a career for you. Oh, um, this is a long story. Should I start? Should I start sure. with one? Yeah. So Tom and I uh, used to be married once upon a time, and we actually met over wine. Um, Tom uh, stole a bottle of wine from me at a party. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, that bottle that I had come to a party with and looked around and been like, I'm not sure that this is the scene for this. This looks like a beer scene today. So I'd stashed it and then uh, found him drinking it. Um, fast forward, um, we uh, enjoyed wine on our first date. Uh, Oregon wine, actually. Um, a bottle of Cloud Line, which is Domenico's second bottling. Uh, fast forward even more, uh, when we got married, we got married on a vineyard in Sonoma. Uh, and uh, we served Oregon wine at that <laughs> Sonoma wedding. <laughs> Sorry, Sonoma. Um, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, yeah. for sure, yeah. Um, fast forward to there, uh, Tom. Um, and I moved back to the Midwest, to St. Louis, where he's from. His uh, grandmother was dying of ovarian cancer, um, and we wanted to spend time with her before she passed away, and Tom elected to go to business school um, at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Grandma Tucker actually died before we got home, though. So, yeah, right yeah, before. Right before, yeah. Um, but we still went to St. Louis, and uh, in the midst of that uh, two-year program, there was a um, big recession. There was a big recession, it's true. Yeah. And also, um, um, a, like a business plan competition. That's how, I'm, I'm telling your story. Our yeah. story, it's our story. Well, yeah, so <laughs> the, the fascination with wine had not gone away mm -hmm. and going to school gave a opportunity to kind of flesh it out a bit more just from pure interest, but now also from a, like, well, what does this business look like and how does it operate and what are the ins and outs of it? And I, I can't say that we really like had any real inclination to say, oh, we're going to do this, but it was something that was just like, well, if you're going to put all this energy into learning how to formulate the right business plan and to vet all the kind of various components about might as well do something you like. Mm -hmm. and so uh, Tom decided to write a business plan on starting a winery. Um, uh, for the final business. How many kids were in, I shouldn't call them kids, I mean, they're all, you guys were all older, we were but you were kids. kids. Um, yeah. How many kids, uh, there was, uh, how many business plans were there? can't remember. I think there's about 15 of 15 them. total, yeah. yeah. And then then, we were groups of like two to four. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then um, I got to help with the project. I was working in event planning and catering, which I had been working in for a long time. Um, and we wrote this business plan on how to start a winery. Um, and Tom presented it with the team I got to go watch. Um, and uh, it was the, apparently according to the judges who were all sort of local business people, um, it was the best written business plan, but the return on investment was... Um, <laughs> Didn't win. <laughs> so, so we got second place. We can we affirm that they were right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a solid foreshadowing. But, yeah, exactly. But they said it was the best written plan. Yeah. Um, so second place it was. The research was definitely intense well and good. <laughs> yeah. um, fast forward a little bit, and uh, Thomas was uh, looking at jobs coming out of business school. He'd been working in banking before, and a little bit of investment banking during school. And the recession had hit, started to hit really hard. Really bad. Um, and I was, I was doing like these 
almost weekly trips to New York to for like group interviews. Yeah, yeah. Well, and all sorts of different stuff, and just like talking to everybody, and like literally during that time that I was doing this over the six months, at least a quarter of those businesses just were, were large names went away, but yeah. and it was like I have like still the letter of a job offer I got for a company that a month later was. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, it, it gets even, it's, I mean, even it more was, intense than that. It was Bear Stearns, and yeah, literally, Stearns, yeah. Tom, we have the letter. We should frame it. Um, because they literally set up the appointment for him to go get his drug test, blood test done, and he turned up, and all the doors were locked at the place. Yeah, and pretty. then in the news, it turns out that the, the bank was under, and then there were some options to maybe move to Houston Dallas, or Dallas, yeah. maybe Cincinnati, yeah, actually, Houston yeah. or Dallas, or Cincinnati Cleveland. or Cleveland, and I was like, no. <laughs> None of these things. Um, so it was, it was a really like dark time it was bad. for the economy and for the world, really. Mm -hmm. and, but we had an um, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And this, this little kind of like, grain of sand of opportunity came our way through her family's friends that owned a vineyard um, in the Old Loire uh, to come spend the season with them and we weren't really very busy at the moment uh, yeah so it seemed to me at the very least it was going to be a nice place and a nice way to, to ride out the ride recession out a few bad months of the recession and <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of figure out what to do next well I like to say that uh, if it was something that we loved, when we went to start to learn how to make wine and make wine, then maybe it could be the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And if it's something that we absolutely hated, then nobody oh, would get at, yeah. Then nobody, including ourselves, would ever say it was a waste of time, yeah. right? It was a good way to take a, take a pause, uh, do something we were super interested in. We were the right in. age for, we were like late 20s or something. Yeah, mid 20s for me. Yeah, 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 mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, right around 30. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good spot in time to kind of, you know, do a little exploration of, and we were very fortunate that, you know, her, her family kind of helped us have that time when it would have been very complicated to get by. Yeah, I mean, being an event planner, there was no way people were going to hold big parties anymore, mm -hmm. even if they had the money. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, our, both of our jobs were like, oof. So, um, so we moved to the, the house in France that is my family's. Um, we took Cass, our dog, um, and we started to go to school in the southern um, area of Burgundy, northern Beaujolais, so the Maconnais and then Juliana, um, Fleury area. Um, and then we would go back to Auvergne, to the Haute Loire, We'd sort of do like class studies and field trips, and then go and do practical work, and that was for almost a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, then there was like a come home for the holidays kind of moment, and figure out what to do next. And we ended up in San Francisco, Griswoldy style, just kind of like loaded up the car mm -hmm. yeah. and drove west. Yeah. And this was really the only place it was considered. Well, the way that it was considered was really interesting. Well, not only did we have Oregon wine sort of in our past, mm -hmm. but we were went to a really famous restaurant in the East Bay. Uh, it was for a special occasion. We were dirt poor, yeah. <laughs> dirt poor. And so we went on a Didn't Monday. We go to lunch? 
No, we went to the yeah. dinner, which was 50 bucks. Yeah, so. it, it was all, at that time, especially with, with the economy, was this is Chez Panisse, Alice Waters, mm -hmm. really famous mm -hmm. restaurant. But because things were so struggling, they had gone to this like tiered system where like Monday was this much to do at three course. And, and, they and still, by Friday and Saturday, they had like the regular. It's, it's actually option. still that way. Oh, it is? Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I like recently went back. No, yeah. but but I th I don't know if it started then, but I think that Monday was very inexpensive at the time for what it is, and um, we sat down with the sommelier who is still the sommelier there today, Jonathan, and uh, the meal, the main part of the meal was uh, seafood choucroute garni. Yeah. Dessert was baba ram. I think the first course was a salad. Um, ding ding. Um, anyway, we asked for we were like we have money for one bottle of wine. Here is our budget. This is <laughs> this is what um this is what uh, this is what we can spend and we need, this is, we need one bottle mm -hmm. and he recommended a bottle of Evesham Wood Pinot Noir and Evesham Wood is Rust Rainy mm -hmm. now uh, owned by um, a different family um, and it was uh, I mean I mean mind blowing we, we'd never tried. Well, an wines email before. came out of that. I never had ever emailed a winemaker before, <laughs> but it was. It was just one of those things where like, this is really special and just sent a note saying, hey, this was a really great wine and learned from that that Russ grew up in the same community I grew up mm -hmm. in, in the St. Louis. And then he and Mary and invited Aiden us, invited yeah. us to stay with them. Yeah. So we literally went up and met people, stayed with people we never met before. Who in the or we talk about like community and collaboration. This is, yeah. this is like, this, this is it for us, right? And he drove us around for four days and, and then took it and then arranged this or you know got us invited well, I don't remember exactly but this dinner at um, the uh, Brian and Jill O'Donnell's house in Belpon Bell and, yeah. and at that dinner was Steve Dorner from Kristen and we played ping pong Scott Wright <laughs> yeah, it, was, you know, yes. and it was like this it was just two kids <laughs> of, of the you know, I, I would say the second generation mm -hmm. of the second Oregon wave, wine yeah. industry, mm -hmm. uh, but the people that were definitely the ones making waves at that point mm -hmm. in time and who were in like the primes of their careers. Yeah, and they and were just, everyone was just so happy to have us around. Like, yeah, they, the, you can't get sold on that. I don't know. I don't know. It was like, <laughs> then I was like, the Kool-Aid is delicious. I've yeah. got it. Like, like we're in. Yeah. Um, he took us to Bethel Heights and we hung out with Pat Dudley. Yeah. You know, we it walked the vines cool. with her. Um, really he cool. drove us over to Eola Springs Vineyard. We've been working with that vineyard since 2010 now. Yeah. Um, I have no idea why he was so nice to us. No, I do, because he's nice. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's what it is. And and he just saw two kids that well, were interested. And, and unbeknownst to us, he was actually looking for the next generation of his winery mm -hmm. and, and he was like, trying I'm gonna to these find kids. Mm -hmm. some, you know, probably family or. You know, that would be the right fit and you know ultimately we were way too inexperienced and that wasn't what we were ready for mm -hmm. but, but it, it was an yeah. incredibly like powerful way to get introduced to the Oregon wine industry and to seeing that there is a career in this that can be you know made and, and kind of that light was i think pretty attractive yeah us. i mean you could taste it in the wine and then when you got here you could see it was true you know mm -hmm. and that was pretty awesome so we went back to france and did some more work there and then said the oregon was it and so we moved out here 
actually, uh, it's the 14th of, of uh, February today, March 1st, 2010. So it's 10 years wow. in six, less than 16 days, 15 days, 28. It's, it's a short month. It's a weird year. month, right? I don't know what's going on with two this weeks, month. Two, two weeks. weeks. Two weeks from now. It's 10, 10 years exactly. Mm -hmm. um, we rented an apartment in the Pearl that we'd never seen before. Uh, it was a bottom like economy, a sublet. Right? A sublet. Yeah, it was like a let of a let. <laughs> um, and Portland was in a really quiet place at that time. You could the restaurants were starting to close. Uh, but it, that we, creative community here was still just starting to like really, mm -hmm. the, you know the the you know I guess yeah, Lepigian was you know, Gabe Rucker was starting to really make waves and. Um, there was sort of opportunity, you yeah. know, Portland was at this point where it was still rough and still raw, but a, a city of makers and the downturn in the economy had sort of gotten rid of one layer of growth, but created room for more growth. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely like people talk to me sometimes about old Portland and like it was right at we the end. At the, into that, the beginning of New, New Portland, Portland yeah. because there was still, especially on the east side, that feel. I mean, you would drive down this street here at Division, and all there was was Laura Kitchen, Pock yeah, Pock, yeah. and the Oregon Theater. Two of them are still there. Yeah. Uh, Oregon Theater's never gone away. Um, that's fine. <laughs> um, Adult movies and, and Vietnamese wings. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. Um, anyway, so yes, yeah, so we arrived here, and first we said we weren't going to make wine. Right away, we, we said we would try to get jobs in the industry and just sort of find our footing. Yeah. Um, I got a job working hospitality for Penner Ash. Tom got a trade job for Methan Family Vineyards. Basically, uh, we decided then uh, within minutes that we were going to make wine. <laughs> so well, we weren't. So yeah. So she had gotten the job in hospitality, and it was pretty slim pickings, especially because we didn't really know very many people. Mm -hmm. And so we had done some, you know, helping out at bottlings and helping out at other little like projects because mm -hmm. that's really what most of the wineries could afford at that point in time. We're like, yeah, we got a week of work, you know, mm -hmm. like, and. Hey, can we give you a case of wine instead of painting? Yeah, you know, we're like, a lot sure. Of that. We still have some of that wine. Yeah, so. probably. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly 2007s. But uh, Chris <laughs> Luberstead, who was then the winemaker at Methvin Family Vineyards, I don't remember how we got connected, but he was like, yeah, we just took on a couple of new custom crush clients and we could actually use the help, but the the owner of the vineyard won't, won't, won't pay really you. let me pay, other than for like a couple of weeks during the harvest time. So everything else would have to be like in trade. And so it started off as this, you know, basically almost like a mentorship, you know, he was extremely helpful to the both of us and we had then gotten these trade grapes and, you know, ability to make the wine without a lot of entry costs and, you know, we were naive to re know that, that, that there wasn't any cost beyond the actually making of the wine is the easy part. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was exciting. It was, really it was exciting. super exciting. I think and it was like six bottles it, or barrels. It was start. six barrels to start yeah. off with. Four and, and two. And two Chardonnay. Two mm -hmm. And we babied those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I looked at them every day. Um, it seemed like so much wine. <laughs> it was just like, what are we going to do with all what this? Are we gonna 250 do? cases mm -hmm. of wine. A couple hundred made. cases. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I continued working for Panarash, and um, and then Tom and I went to release our first wine in 2011. We were just on 
July 28th, 2011, our first rosé, actually. Yep, and yeah. we were really fortunate to get him. So one of the clients that was at um, the Methven Vineyard was Jay McDonald of EIEIO. He, he doesn't have any more, but he had this tasting room in Carlton, Carlton. Mm -hmm. and he was going to hold a book signing for Catherine Cole's new um, book at the time. And was it the Voodoo Vintners book, or is the one before I that? Think, I think it was the Voodoo mm -hmm. Vintners. It wasn't yep. the biodynamic one. No, that's, that's the biodynamic one. It's, yeah, the, it's yeah. the one before. Yes, yeah, the one before. <laughs> so, um, so he invited, and he was like, hey, it's your first wine, come over and pour it. And Catherine really took a liking to it. And she put a little article about it out in, in Mix Mag, Mix Mag, which was Mix Magazine. And that just kind of like it was just enough ammunition to get a few people to buy to open the door. Mm -hmm. Eighteen cases we made or something. Uh huh. We used to go. So we used to go on all guerrilla um, sales trips where we would like turn up at restaurants, oh, we hang out, years. and then open a bottle of wine and, and you know talk to the bartender and just leave. I mean, yes, years of just what, yeah. going around. We, Spending more money than we were making, but trying to get people to money try the wine. Credit cards and stuff. Yeah, but like we, <laughs> Still we really didn't know anybody. Like we, so I mean, we we got to know people, <laughs> but like some of the pe people that were our age that were had started brands mm -hmm. or who were working in the industry, they were like, oh, they'd worked in the restaurants in Portland for years, or they'd worked as a sales rep for a distributor, or. They had worked for you know another winery and you know kind of got the contacts through that. Yeah, no, we were and just like, two we were strangers, true, true mm -hmm. outsiders. And it's something you don't do unless you're 28 and 30 anymore. Like, yeah. you, or maybe you do, but it's like let's move somewhere where we don't know a soul. But <laughs> I mean, it was, it. it was a ton of perseverance, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it was also a bit of timing where like the world started to get a little bit better and we kind of got to ride that up. Well, we did, yeah, yeah. but and at the same time, what was interesting is that the wine world was still a little bit slower. The 2007s were, sl so were selling very slowly because it had been panned in the press, though a delicious vintage, right? Yeah. Um, the 2008s people were super excited about because the sun had started shining again. Um, and the so people had a fair amount of back stock, the great prices had started to drop a little bit um, and you know what at the end of the day that recession actually created opportunity for us yeah. and created we were able to get into vineyards that we would not yeah. have been able to get into, into because the there was experience a, level we yeah had. because there was availability and we were then uh, you know able to get in on this place which is the Southeast Wine Collective sort of as the recession was creeping out of it um, there's no way that we would be able to afford this place th these days. Yeah, it's it yeah, it not, it not a thing. Definitely like a kind of luck in timing, luck in timing mm -hmm. coupled with hard work, hard work, <laughs> and the energy you have when you're young enough and foolish enough to go do something. Yeah, fearless. Certain. I think fear yeah, let's fearless. fearless. <laughs> foolish, yeah. foolish. <laughs> Sounds and, reckless. And then I guess I think which would be a kind of a cool transition is that this also kind of corresponded in a time when there was a growing interest in things other than the kind of classic wines that this region was known and for. And that's actually what the recession brought also yeah. is the price point of Burgundy and the price point of, of, a well, of, of a lot of older world wines that were well established was suddenly too expensive for people to eat, to drink out. Yeah, um, and yeah so at least with as much frequency. Yeah, so they started to look to other varieties, um, especially to the Beaujolais. 
uh, especially where we, had, where we had just gone to school and we had a giant interest in gamay and so that sort of trickled down into a United States interest in finding things for the list that weren't such big names um, that were really well priced to quality valued it's um, funny because like we we were we made Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and a little bit of rosé the very first year because I mean that was kind of like what we got. Um, but working at Methvin, they had a couple uh, rows right by the, yeah, the winery, an acre mm -hmm. and a half of Gamay that was they they were just putting it into the Pinot Noir into their biggest blend. They didn't really know what to do with it. It and, was under the ten yeah, percent threshold, you know, all exactly. of the things. So we, we had kind of said, well, the first year in 2010, they're like, well, let us make a little bit of this because it, you know, it's just crazy not to make gamay. I know, and, and, and it and sold right away. Yeah, they sold it right away, and mm -hmm. then the next year, they said, okay, we'll, we'll share the block with you. So we made our first gamay in 2011, mm -hmm. and we have shared the block with them ever since. And, and then that, that 2011 bottling of gamay, uh, well-priced, different varieties, sold really easily. Yeah. Um, and it um, was interesting, and it sort of had our mind clicking not only in terms of uh, sort of what the scope of Oregon and the Willamette Valley could look like, but also the scope of the American wine drinker. Um, that there was room for, in this valley, lots and lots of Pinot and some other things, too. So, yeah. that's, kind of, that's kind of our starting point, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I remember, though, like, the first times we were, I was trying to sell that, there was obviously, like, curiosity, because you'd be like, oh, okay. But there was a big resistance by certain people to buy it because they're like, Who's, who will buy this from me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and we, you know, it, it was maybe to some degree a, a hand sale or a, or a more like you got to find the right buyer kind of thing. But that has but, that has changed. But that changed mm -hmm. a lot, and it was the same way at that point in time actually with Chardonnay too, mm -hmm. which is just now like now like Oregon Chardonnay is you know one of the hottest things there is, and these. These things were a part of our kind of like DNA from the really very mm -hmm. first parts of the business. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, I guess, you know, we we feel fortunate that, I, look, I would never say that we were like, oh, if this is what's gonna be big in 10 <laughs> years or five years. We were not thinking like that at all. But we, what we were thinking about was is that these are varieties that, that we, we, love had, to drink. we love to drink and so. we had just had experience with mm -hmm. working with in France and we're like, there's too much similarity here in climate and growing conditions to not Especially to the Auvergne like region, yeah. not necessarily the Burgundy, but especially the Auvergne. And the Loire Yeah, the too. Loire too. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, these, so it, 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 I guess, gave us a more experimental, like, mindset than maybe somebody who had only either trained in Oregon or trained in Burgundy or trained in California, California who like their frame of reference is like, oh, this is what you make here, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, like you make Pinot Noir here, that's what you, that, you know, is always, and for many good reasons why it's the anchor grape for this region. But to, for us, it was like, well, there's, there seems to be like like in the frontierian mindset a lot of room for other things too. And um, you know the, a beautiful history that is not that long. Yeah. You know, fifty some odd years. Uh, it feels like a really long time to all to everyone that has been fighting the good fight. But if you look at the rest of the wine world, it's a blink. Um, and so we are really, I think, in a position within our valley to to be able to sort of play 
continue to play and continue to keep that sort of pioneering spirit when it comes to grapes. Yeah. So that's how we became known as the Gamay Kids, I guess. <laughs> I think this is still his first question. <laughs> Second, but you guys are doing great. Oh, we are? Okay. 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 I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, no, this is what I, this is, I'm just okay. crossing I was like, go here. Okay, oh, so we're doing okay? You're so checking them off, checking them off. Great. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, backing up for just a moment here, you, you mentioned having this special bottle of, of Evesham Wood in this restaurant. Why was it special? You guys had had wine before. What was it about this bottle? It had such spirit and soul. Yeah, it was you know we were living and had spent a lot of time in California and the, I hate to like bash on bash, Cali. <laughs> yeah, but at the time and, and at the time what most people had accessibility to or were drinking were these kind of like formulaic wines that were the Napa style, Sonoma style. There was like a lot of oak and a lot of richness. And, and I a lot think of this. that and some of the indie, more indie sort of experimental California producers didn't have a loud mi microphone, right? We, we, and there was no social media. Mm -hmm. There was no way for us to be able to uh, to really discover them unless you spent a lot of time researching. Yeah. And so people like Steve Edmonds and uh, they were flying under the they radar. Were under the radar yeah, was, unless you were in the know. Yeah, there, there was people there for sure that were doing really cool stuff, but like we were not in the, the know. For the most part, we were not. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we we didn't have much experience with that. So what we did have experience with was this was so much different. It was just kind of like whoa, like this is possible here. And so it, was, it had so it had like touch points on things that we had enjoyed drinking in France. Mm -hmm. Um, it had this beautiful sort of bright acid, low alcohol quality that is how Tom and I love to drink. Um, and it was just, uh, it, it, it was just a surprise to us. And, and, and not that we didn't love Oregon Pinot already. I mean, we sort of Dimension at our wedding, you know, where, where, but it was we just... We didn't still have very much experience with Oregon Pinot. Pinot Noir, Noir. There but really it, wasn't much available, mm -hmm. like, outside, mm -hmm. especially living in California or, or France. Like, those weren't places you went looking for Oregon wine. So anything that we really got from here was, you know, mailing lists or you, you know, find either the bigger wineries at certain or small the, independent wine Or my shops. dad would collect a few Oregon Pinots yeah, and he'd open them like, for us every once in a while. It was still kind of mm -hmm. the main, the main producers of that era that were, you know, who had distribution and it wasn't like, like Evesham Wood is a perfect example of this, the few small family wines, artisan wines that were kind of escaping the Oregon boundaries and not every bottle was going to a mailing list or a wine club mm -hmm. or something like that. The, I remember the wine had a little bit of like a higher VA point, like it, it was a little bit, like it, it wasn't like technically perfect in the way that you think of like the chemistry of wine, but it was so delicious. Just remember loving it. Yeah, um, and it was alive, you know, in its own way. And uh, so yeah, I think we both fell in love with that bottle. Yeah. Tell me about the experience of learning wine at that point. You had a wine background, but then you went to actual school to mm -hmm, learn how to make yeah. it, and then you started kind of accidentally making it yourself. So tell me about that process of learning well, how to make wine. wine is nothing like learning how to make it. <laughs> it was definitely a crash course in the realities of, and I mean, there's all sorts of jokes about, you know, wine making is 90% cleaning and 8% this and 2% drinking beer. And, you know, but it, 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 the, the work is very hard, and it is so 
so not romantic. It's very physical, um, especially it's, at the harvest time. It's very mental, also. Yeah, I mean, you're creating timing is all yeah. like you know you. Like, I you know I, I I talk to people in the brewing industry and like not that they want to do this, but if they mess up like a batch, they just open know, the valve. They, yeah, it goes down <laughs> the drain and they boil some more you know barley and put in some more hops and like mm. and there the thing that is so cool and magical about wine is there is no magic formula. You can kind of make a wine formulaic and rough out the edges and have a style to it but there is no way to capture it again you're not we're not making smirnoff yeah so, tom know, like, and i have an analogy that winemaking is like um like a wall full of switches just light switches um and there's ons on and off for each one um and you have to decide which ones are on and off but you can't go around switching the same one on and off and on and off and on and off. It's a one-time decision because if you do this, people can taste it. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so you have to you have to go with your gut. You have to go with your experience. You have to go with your taste. And then at the end of the day, after you've made all of those decisions and you haven't slept and you've spent all that money, you then have to go out into the general public and say, "Do you like me too?" Yes. Yeah. And sometimes it's and sometimes it's sometimes it's, it's no. And then you have to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> so you have one shot. Each mm -hmm. time, every vintage is one shot to do it and like if you would have asked that question 10 years ago it would be a slightly different answer but I, I think the, literally there is no substitute for the experience like there is no way to get what decisions we made at that point in time were truly intuition and the, the little bit of training we had had that kind of affirmed that well if you do something like this something like this should happen but it really doesn't ever do that and then every year is different you know and we are at the, the mercy of mother nature so those decisions that we are making are based on parallels that are never exactly the same yeah. um and so but you get to learn the ins and outs of vineyards and they're kind of Quirks, quirks, mm -hmm. yeah, and how they, you know, how react, they, how they work with warm years and cool years, and how the rain affects them, and what that means when they're in the cellar, and you know, it gives and you a, a parameters, bit, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you get a you get a working range of going. Well, this is we know this is kind of the direction things will go, but you don't get the same result every time. Yeah. And if you're getting the same result, it's that's really I don't know how you would do that actually unless you were following some kind of recipe. But that's also the beauty. You know, um, so what was the question? <laughs> it was about like learning, <laughs> learning and making one. And, 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 and you know, there's when you go out and present wines, and it, the people, who, especially who write about wine and who market it, you know, they like to use lots of adjectives and things to like talk about, like, oh, it's like a bean cherry or whatever, and. You know, and then you go taste with somebody who just wants to get their bottle to take home and have dinner, and they're like, well, I don't taste being chair, I don't get that, and but like, and they're like, well, how do you know that? Well, and the, the only thing I guess that I can say to this, and it's like the making of wine, and it's like the loving wine and drinking it, is there is no shortcut to doing it a lot. You know, so if you try a couple thousand wines over and over and over, you'll taste again, the Bing Cherry at some point. You'll start to get the differences <laughs> between them. You know, and and if you try, you know, 
making wine from the same place for a couple of dozen years, you're going to get better or at least more knowledgeable. Well, knowledgeable. Hopefully it. better, yes. right? Hopefully better, but at least more knowledgeable. More knowledgeable. Um, yeah, and that experience uh, is really wonderful because it allows you to make decisions a little faster. It allows you to see patterns. Um, but the best part about making wine is it's never the same. Yeah. Like we have a job that is never the same Being from day to day. Yeah. So this is not a job for desk jockeys, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, this is like but if you're into it. There's actually so many stories too of people who have come to wine because they like I mean, they enjoy it and then they try to make wine or do it and they're just like this is just too like Risky. I can't deal with mm -hmm. the the uncertainty uncertainty mm -hmm. right, perfect word of it and. The wines that I have to make require me to like have to make a lot of more uh, heavy-handed decisions. And then the wines and then I don't, I don't like make. my own wine. Yeah, so it's like they're then they're out. And they go back to drinking someone else's wine. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, the, I think the process of learning. We, we're uh, we're the person we learned with. So Michelle and Annie Sovac, um that are based in Bude in the Haute Loire. Um, they are uh, just incredible people. Um, the, uh, uh, vintage in France is very, is very interesting. They have like um, certain parameters they have to hit in terms of alcohols, in some regions in terms of color of the, and, uh, the wine. So there's more stresses there, even more so than in America. That's one thing I've learned, making wine in France. Not fun. <laughs> for well, the bureaucracy. <laughs> for the bureaucracy yeah. at all. I mean, I mean making fun, the wine yeah. itself is amazing, but the bureaucracy See, is... It's just... Yeah. That's, yeah. We're lucky in America. Yeah, ours mm -hmm. isn't overly challenging. I mean, there is definitely regulations and controls, but, you know, the it's, it's very restrictive. Mm -hmm. They have created a system that is protective of what they feel like the ideal or classic Standard. wine should be mm -hmm. from a certain place and there is something to be said about that has meant that people have gotten very good at doing things within that framework mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you don't have the latitude to go outside starting of to though so the last yeah. you know 10 years have changed in france with people going to van de france yeah that's but, because but, the wine market's more global now yeah. it used to not be like that mm -hmm. it's like now the options that the consumer has globally could the wine could come from so many different places and people don't necessarily care if it has the appellation yeah. on it anymore AOC yeah or the people that we made wine with literally i don't think we realized at the time but we're low intervention winemakers you know um so tom and i always laugh but that's the only way we know how yeah there was no fashionable word like natural wine. wine. No, it was just this is how you make yeah, it, like, and then this is what you do, and it'll be a little different every year. Go for it, yeah. and uh, don't, yeah, don't do too much, don't do too little. Yeah. Um, take care of your grapes. Take care, yeah, take care. Don't scorch your earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. make, make sure not to be lazy with your topping. Make yeah. sure that you're monitoring all the things. Be, clean. be really clean, uh, but don't add shit. You know. And, yeah. so, and then we came here, and we're like, oh, that has a title. Yeah. <laughs> it became an Instagram buzzword. It, it did, yeah. <laughs> and 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 it's been really, you know, really, I guess, interesting to be kind of see that happen from our perspective. Um, you know, because. Because of the way we've approached wine, we have been kind of brought into that culture, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's nothing Kate and I ever really looked for. You know, we weren't saying, oh, we want to 
we want to be natural winemakers. Yeah, it's it's we want to make really of, good wine yeah. that has that we don't have to do too much that starts in the vineyard and tastes like the vintage. Yes, and it's it's the part <laughs> of human culture of needing to have like a, a tribal cool. connection, mm -hmm. kind of like this is my group, you know, and and so I totally understand that because like what we were talking about earlier with where California wine was when we really started getting into wine. This was be kind of become the like pendulum swing to the opposite direction. It happened sort of at the same time as us moving here, right? Yeah. And so the new California was starting to really take off. So you have, you know, people like Brock, you have Lioko, you have uh, Matthiasen, and so that was sort of an upswing. So but then people like Ridge and Edmonds who have been doing it like that their whole, the whole career. career. But yeah. yeah, but it's interesting, sort of more about timing, right? That yeah. we sort of arrived back doing a thing that was starting to be done as a bigger group. The timing was really good for yeah. us. So, so you've, you've, you've got some wine now, you've got some, some gamay mm -hmm. you're building, you're building it too. So uh, tell me about uh, the, the, the brand, uh, Growing Division, Na naming it, I guess, for one thing, and then, uh, and then deciding what comes next. Mm -hmm. Well, it got easily named by the street that we're on right now. And that's sort of a joke, you know, um, it when- was, It was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing there. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Kind of, no, no, no. You know, you. Well, I, I was thinking I about funny. when we were doing this because we had like taken a photo of the street sign around the time when we were naming the winery, and there was this kind of like, you know, decision amongst us that like, oh, it's a, you know, divide and conquer, and there was this division of labor that we had, and all these little things, and we live here, and then then we had just come from France, France where yeah. you like name your winery based upon like. Area, you're not after yourself, right? Yeah. So, if you look at most major wine brands of the past, it says where it's made, yeah, and then the person's the name is tiny. The, so, we're like, oh, we'll just name a division because that's where it's made, you know. And then, uh, and now it's the perfectly named winery because we are now divorced, yeah. So, yeah, Touché. Too, so. <laughs> but we're still doing it, so. Uh, almost as much time to, to as a couple as not a couple now, so which is pretty impressive for me. <laughs> impressive, you managed to stay together in business. And, and, in and, business. Still, and still talk about this. It had its moments. <laughs> <laughs> still does. Yeah. So. Fewer of them, uh, thankfully. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the division started off Pinot, Chardonnay, then a little, and some Pinot Rose, a little bit of Gamay. And um, then we moved, we did two years down at Methven, and then we decided we were going to get our own spot. And so we moved here, Division Street. Um, and we were still too small to, to kind of incorporate this space on our own. We did not have the operating experience or the wherewithal financially or... To take it on by ourselves. To take on this by ourselves at the time. So we invited a few other winemakers that were sort of in our same mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, same sort of size, one of them was a little bit bigger, um, in order to be able to share in the production space. And then the area you're sitting in right now became what we called our tasting bar. And the Southeast Wine Collective was born out of that. Yeah. It was, so it was, um, you know, very much, uh, I guess in many ways what Portland was kind of known to, it was born out of necessity. It was that we all needed a place to be able to do what we wanted to do. That place didn't exist. Mm -hmm. None of us could handle it individually. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the wineries in the valley didn't 
want folks like us in their place. Yeah, and then we also and thought it'd be important that a lot of custom crush facilities are a little bit more quiet about who's making wine there. We're like, why don't we be the opposite? Yeah. Why don't we talk about it? So it became yeah, like an incubator in a sense for, mm-hmm. for our own. And we kind of looked at it like, well, you know, the voice we'll have as a group will be bigger than the voices that we individually have right now because nobody knows who any of us are. And, uh, and that was also the thought behind having it in town is that at that time, I think we were going to be the, I don't know. Uh, fourth, fourth. fourth or fifth winery in town? In town, but then in the valley, it would have been in the hundreds, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. At that point, it was clearing in on five. Five, wineries. yeah. And we're like, why would anyone drive down there to come visit us? Well, I think I, one of our first wineries, <laughs> and he was a great, great winemaker and a great friend of from, uh, Vincent Fritchie from Vincent mm-hmm. Wine Company. And he was here, and I love, it, it's so cheesy, but he would say, well, let's let the grapes do the commuting. And, and, I, <laughs> and it, was, uh, it was just like, it's I adorable. always think about that. Mm-hmm. And, and he put that like in his first newsletter when he was here or something like yeah. that. That's how I've always kind of thought about it. it and uh, but yeah, that was there was five of us that were making wine. Yeah, in the and then the year. next year there were ten. ten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and we've been out of space ever since. Mm-hmm. And I, it's been the opposite problem for of every year imagined. except the first one. Yeah, uh, but we were lucky. It was 2012 that first year. Yeah. And we had just opened the winery just in time. We had our opening party. We had one ferment going in here. And we had a couple hundred people in here to say hello the first day. And then I remember the 2012 growing season and harvest just being really warm. And it was e- rapid and, 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 and so dry. dry. But it was easy. And I, I think back, and if it had been a tougher year in terms of weather, yeah, because the it, re- it was really hard. hard. But at least we had one year under yes. our belt. So... Um, so yeah, so we have the tasting barn here. We have the winemakers out there. Um, there's uh, over 170 tons that come through the door. It's a bit nuts. Yeah, it is a little bit insane. Um, plus, we've got two other places we're renting nuts, like additional capacity, capacity for, storage for barrel mm-hmm. storage. Mm-hmm. We have an RV slip that we keep all our crush equipment. We've got crap everywhere, like <laughs> all five quadrants of Portland. Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah, we've outgrown the space yeah, for sure. It's definitely like become a bit more challenging from the production spec, you know, as the winery has mm-hmm. grown. It's, but at the same time, but it's home. Yeah. It is home, and it's ours. <laughs> and what we like to say, sorry, you have a burr on you, um, is that uh, the division, the Southeast Wine Collective, has kind of provided platforms for each other. Mm-hmm. When we open this place, the number one thing I said is that if we're going to make wine in town, I want people to know it's good wine. Mm-hmm. Because when you make wine in an urban setting, people automatically think that you make it in your basement in your bathtub, mm-hmm. like, and that it's not going to be good, right? We and definitely felt felt that more with the people that would come to see us in the beginning. In the beginning. I, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's different now. It's different it's now. Changed. It's changed. Okay. Like, yeah. It's different and Chardonnay mm-hmm. is different. And all but I think if you put change. enough effort behind it, um, and we decided that we would you know, have some really good producers in here with us, that we would have PR and that we would hire somebody to help us spread the word of how delicious this place was. So, and she kind of made a really good point there. It's just like, well, how do you legitimize yourself? Well, you put yourself against in front of legitimate people. So we would have the likes of like Adam Campbell come here and taste mm-hmm. and bring the Elk Cove crowd, or we'd have Brian O'Donnell come, Belpon, or we'd have whoever, you know, like a lot of really- Well, people that we'd met in that, that, that first, you know. You know Jason Lett and Javairi here. And I mean, these are the people that- Inspire us. Inspire us, mm-hmm. for sure. And and that we look up to as... as and it was an honor for them to say yeah. yes and to say that they'd come and hang out and they'd bring their crowd and their crowd would meet our crowd. 
Um, and and, yeah, and then maybe make our crowd a little bit bigger. <laughs> maybe and maybe introduce yeah. some people to their crowd too. Probably not. You know, they're yeah. all really famous. But, um, but yeah, so we like worked we chipped really hard at it. We did events like two events a week every week for years. Mm. Uh, years. Did overwhelm. It was overwhelming. Um, but I really, you know, the thought is, I really wanted us if we were going to do this, that we were going to do it right, and we were going to put every ounce of our being into making it so people understood that we weren't making wine in our bathtub. Yeah. And, um, and then we traveled like crazy. We yeah. still do to try to spread the gospel. On yeah, on division. Mm-hmm. In 2013, we decided to really diversify the line for division. We'd made a little bit of Gamay Rosé in 12. Um, we made a little bit of Nouveau also, and we decided that we were going to start looking at making some Chenin. Um, we'd had an opportunity in 2012 to make this little Cab Franc blend. Our friend Jesse Skiles, who has Post Peace Winery, wanted to use our press but didn't have any cash to give us to use it, so he gave us some fruit that he had that Cap, was extra. Cap some Cab Franc from, from Oat. Yeah. from Outlook, some own Row Cap Franc. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made a wine that we'd never made before, and we called it Bethel, which means cement. We made it in our cement fermenters at the back of the winery. It's now our largest production wine. Yeah. Um, we started making uh, some carbonic Pinot Noir. We released five extra wines that year under the Division Village line, and then we've grown that line ever since. Sort of into... Yeah, we did the first vintage of it was maybe a total of like 700 cases. Yeah, cases, yeah. So, but it's like... It's about 4,500 now, mm-hmm. something like that. Yes. So that's how Division has grown. And then uh, in 2013, Tom let me, uh, he got me a gift. He got me a ton of Cornas Clon Syrah from Southern Oregon. So I started my line, which is called Gamine. Uh, and that's grown to four skews now. So it's Syrah, Carbonic Grenache, Grenache Rose Petnat, and Aligote. And then in 2017, Tom started his wine project, which is called Nightshade. He makes Nebbiolo. So I think, I don't know, I, people oftentimes ask how many varieties we work with. It's almost 20. Well, not, maybe not 20. We've got definitely more than 20 skews. Skews. There's 27 yeah. skews, yeah. yeah. No, well, between, yeah. Great varieties, I think I counted the other day, was like 9 or 10. No, I think it's more than that with really? the ore wines, too. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's more than that. So, oh, those wines. Those wines. Well, so one of the founding members here, um, uh, kind of who came in off the street and was just like, oh, I want to make wine. And we've been, you know, assisting making those wines for the last eight years, I guess. And those varieties are even, you know, more ones that we don't work with vision, but but we got experience with working in everything from like Sangiovese to Blaufranc. Yeah, the, the 20 is for the collective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For the collective. I think we got up to 22 varieties in here. So, so, so. yeah. How do you manage that many people in this space? Uh, it's hard. It's hard. We, like, Tom and I have PhDs in Tetris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we... We actually have some really great time, people that work we here. Got, you met Drew when mm-hmm. you first came in. Um, Alex. Drew, yeah, we've, we've got, you know, the team ha- has really, I guess, improved over the time that we've done this. When we started, we had one of our friends kind of helping us out and he did a great job, but it, it just became bigger and more challenging. And like, uh, you know, it takes a lot of energy to be able to kind of juggle, make, that. juggle the personalities mm-hmm. and juggle everybody's needs. And so we have thankfully been able to get, you know, I, you know, a really good team all around. Our and team we have for a, the wine bar here is amazing. Yeah, and we have a great group of winemakers too. Yeah. Um, and also with those, 20 varieties 
-hmm. It makes for a really long spread out harvest. Mm -hmm. It's actually, uh, it's better than, t than 10 winemakers making it all Pinot. Mm -hmm. um, because we can start early with some sparkling and end really late with some caps off. So, yeah, um, so, so actually a little bit of masochism that we have some of the longest harvest seasons of all time, I think. But um, I, I ran into Jay Summers, um, who um, has just sold Jay Christopher recently. But he was talking to me about because they had made a very different varieties. He's like, oh, he's like, you know, he's like, it was just time and. I, I, you know, 90 day harvests were starting that's, to kind of wear me down. I was that's, like, that's what oh, we do. I was like, I yeah. know all about a 100 day harvest. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. and, and, and there was, was one year like, we were still making like, one on Christmas the only Day. Thing I actually do know. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, we have winemakers in here who maybe make one variety or two variety and their harvest is like two weeks two long. Two weeks long. <laughs> or, or friends of ours down in the valley that are all in and done in a month. And I'm yeah. like, how does that feel? Uh -huh. Maybe one day. I don't know. Well, not yet. We're not dead yet. So. Um, so yeah, so then division, so that's how those grew. Um, oh, or winery that walked off the street, we just, we were purchasing uh, a brand this year, so we're going to be growing even more, um, which I'm excited about, some fun different varieties and new opportunities for us too. Um, and then in the meantime, the wine bar and restaurant side, we turned into a fully named restaurant uh, two years ago, just over. It'd been operating as a restaurant for like three years before but that. But it got its identity in 2017. Yeah, I uh, said so we have the long, the longest soft opening of all time, mm -hmm. three years. We. We. We is what it's called, and um, we have an incredible group of people from Althea who you can hear listen to Michael Jackson back there. I don't know if it's coming through. <laughs> um, and Ben, they're getting ready for Valentine's Day service tonight. Then we have yeah, Elissa and Liz, our managers, Shauna and Davis, who work. Our bar shifts, we have some amazing bussers, Amanda, Sean, Brian, Casey, so they're all family. Mm -hmm. um, and we operate a fully, full-blown restaurant and a full-blown winery in the same space in uh, 5,000 square feet. So, um, but the food's really good. <laughs> the wine's not that bad either, so. <laughs> How, I'm, I'm curious, going back to your, to your, your well-written but poorly thought out perhaps business plan in school, <laughs> Uh, was any of this in it? Was this was this part of your original no. plan? So it was more classic in the sense of being based in the um, the Willamette Valley. What was really helpful from it was like the financial models that were created from it, and just the like basic question strengths. How do we how do we look at this? And then something that was in there that I think is different from some other wineries is that I had this event planning background and so yeah, we had a, a big events. event program built into mm -hmm. our model, which I don't necessarily got into this place. Which got into this place, which I don't know is necessarily how a lot of wineries were operating at the time. But the multi-user, multi-member, multi-wine maker, that was the part that was really different. Mm -hmm. So we had taken the principles of what was from the original business plan. Stuck it in Portland and added a few people. Stuck it in Portland and added some other winemakers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you, you mentioned the reception from the Portland public, and of course, a, a fairly new urban wine scene when you came into it that has yeah. obviously grown quite a bit. It was slow, too. It was, yeah, yeah, it was it slow. Was... I mean, so Hip Chicks just celebrated 20 years, mm -hmm. and so we're 10 years after that. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, it was slow at first. I think that combination the, of the recession. Well, that and this, this, you know, this community has definitely been more beer mm -hmm. and... And then, but spoiled with the Willamette Valley, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and like... I, I almost 
and I still feel like this a little bit, I almost feel like the Willamette Valley has been more attractive to the visitors that come here than it is the local Portland mm -hmm. population. We, like, we have a really food interested, but the, the like, you know, if you were to pick up what we're doing here and put it in like Bordeaux or something, I mean, everybody there is just drinking lots of Bordeaux. Here is a much more diversified, mm -hmm you know, local community that's into cocktails and, you know, all the, we have more breweries per capita than anywhere else on the planet, you know, and so we were definitely fighting for our little piece of the table. So a lot, I think a lot, especially our earlier guests that were coming here were more, it was like a curiosity to see what it was about, but like, you know, it wasn't like the breweries where there's, you know, the new culty IPAs coming out and there's a line out the door and they're trying to see like who can get the, the growler first but I, but I also think that something that's interesting is that the you know the Portland diner and people here we, we love uh, have options right that's something that's so beautiful about living in in town is the amount of restaurants you can go to and the different scenes in all of the neighborhoods and mm -hmm. um, so having a collective that produced all different kinds of wines became sort of like a, a go-to for some people that weren't just interested in single variety, mm -hmm. and just Pinot. Um, so it's just something for everybody. Because you know, you go out with your friends, you have your, your friends that all like the same thing, and then you also go out to dinner with people that like different things too. Mm -hmm. And we sort of filled that niche for them. Um, our goal was to be like the gateway drug to the Willamette Valley. Um, I always want people to go on a big wine trip. I want them to go to France. I want them to fly to Australia, New Zealand, go, go see something, you know, mm -hmm. go taste something delicious. I also know that that takes money and time and also a fair amount of confidence. Because mm -hmm. um, wine can be a little complicated sometimes, or at least we made it that way. It's a little snooty um, and it's a little expensive. Um, and so if we can get them hooked, if they can just take an Uber or, or ride their bike here, then. The, opportunity to try half a dozen wines, a dozen wines and, and feel happy yeah. then maybe one day they will buy that plane ticket mm -hmm. to somewhere yeah. else and fall in love with another region and, and gain that confidence mm -hmm. so that was one of the goals here you know is to sort of spread the word a little bit and to demystify wine you see it's like all it's all glass you get to you get to watch so you mentioned, you talked earlier about your, your kind of winemaking philosophy and, and just sort of, that's how people make wine, just the kind of natural or mostly natural style. I'm curious, what do you want people to take away from a bottle of your wine, a wine that you've made? What is, it, what, is the, what is the ultimate compliment or what is the ultimate takeaway from one of your wines? My ultimate compliment is when I'm at a dinner party and I look over and somebody's trying to shake the last drop out of my bottle. That is like the ultimate. I want people to enjoy the whole bottle. Um, the, uh, Tom and I both think about the wines being interesting yet ultimately delicious. And timeless. And, and timeless. There needs to be a classic nature to them. That it's not about fads, because wine is not. I mean, there might it's be. It's fun to make fad wines, mm -hmm. like, and you know it, and like you're just like, oh, we're just like having fun with this. Yeah. And, and I mentioned. Because it keeps you thinking, and it keeps you experimenting, and it keeps things interesting. And it's interesting, as I said earlier, to see the fashion of wine change, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, just making something really yummy that is good value, um, that has some, something you keep coming back to. Um, so, it's like, you know, like a really good black dress. I, <laughs> so. I saw an interview recently with, um, a very famous Rolling Stone writer, um, and he was talking about what makes certain 
artists and musicians, you know, important throughout their entire lives. And he said that it's when a artist or a musician can continually sound like themselves in every art in every album they put out, and you know it's them. Like you know that's a Rolling Stones song, or you know, or it's a Talking Heads yeah, song, exactly. or it, it doesn't has, matter the time. It has mm -hmm. its own sound, and I feel like that with our wines. Like whenever I drink them, I like I know they're ours. Like yeah. it, they, there's something so familiar about them that even if it's a different grape variety, even if it's a different vintage. You know, I feel that way. I feel that they were definitely rougher around the edges in the beginning, and that there's a fine tuner of voice. It's exactly, mm -hmm. but um, and there should be differences. You know, no, like yeah, no, it's a Rolling Stones album sounds the same, but you still there's a thread. Mm -hmm. There's but a yeah, thread through it. There's a. I talk about like I was different last year, and the year was different last year. So the wines year to year are going to be different. Mm -hmm. The sun, the moon, the stars were different last year, but you will all always have our gentle imprint mm -hmm. on it. You know that's the way we ushered it to where it was going. Um, and because without us, it wouldn't have made it. Wouldn't be the way it is, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, and finding your voice. That's uh, that's. That's a hard thing to do, um, but that's the goal. I'm curious about a word you used there. You said timeless for your wine, and that's something we don't actually hear that often in these interviews. People are, these are a lot of words to describe their wine or what they want their wine to be, but timeless isn't one of them. So I'm curious what you mean exactly by that and, and how, you, how do you create a timeless wine? <laughs> so I, I guess using, again, the music analogy of it is it's like if you were to put on, um, you know, let's say, Talking heads. Stop uh, making sense. Stop stop making sense. Let's do stop making yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. That to me would sound as fresh and original today as it did in 1982. Or and or our goal for our wines is to and, do the same. And yeah, I, I think we want the wines to always have this capacity to not ever feel like they're trend based, but they're wines that in any time and place they're they're delicious and interesting. And reflective of who we are and the place we're from, and that that's at the the it, the consumer can make that translation. You know that it that they can connect with the wines that way. So you've obviously had quite a few changes uh, since you started here. Mm -hmm. uh, what's next? What are you guys looking at uh, future plans? Well, I mean the 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 big one is what to do about the production of division going into the future as we have. You know, between a lot of little things like renting spaces in other places and just being really creative with it, we've been able to continue to kind of grow division, but we're, we're really up against that wall right now. So yeah, so that's our, for the next couple of years, that's our main goal is to try and figure out um, how how we can continue to grow this while having our hands on it completely. The, evolution, the next evolutionary step of the, of the division mm -hmm. brand. And then, you know, for this place, it's what's next for, for here if we're not here, at least from a production perspective. Mm -hmm. And so these are the questions that we're asking ourselves right now. And what is, you know, because this place where it is, is we think very special and provided a very special thing for the community that we are in. And so, you know, how are we gonna steward that to the, mm -hmm. its next step? Yeah. Um, for me, it's um, creating some of our village wines and making them household names. Uh, I would really love 
for us to be able to grow our beton production to the point where it can be really well recognized nationwide. Yeah, it's like the um, the Bonnie Dew, like little cigar volant. Like that's like a, that's kind of always my my wine that I think of like with the baton is mm -hmm. you know that was a wine that that uh, Randall Graham grew you know throughout his entire career and became like what he was known for and you know it was the first kind of like old school GSM uh, wine that always had you know a little edgier a little fresher characteristic than a lot of the California wines that were kind of in and out of vogue over the years <laughs> and I just feel like if we can ever get one of our wines to connect like that and to, you know, that, that, that would be, that a, would be, be a real benchmark. For that would be a benchmark. Career. And so that's a, yeah. yeah, that's a goal for us. Um, also to always keep playing. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom and I make experiment wines every single year. Most of them never see the light of day. Yeah, that's not true. Most of them actually do. Well, they don't go into, <laughs> they, 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 they don't usually go into permanent bottling. They don't go to permanent bottling, but um, that's uh, something that I know about us. You know, um, trying to master single varieties is always in our, that's what we always want to do, but I also know us and we will experiment till the day we die. Mm -hmm. um, so playing around with that, having fun, um, having Gamay become even more popular nationwide. That's, you know, that's been, that's, thank you, so, Myron so, Redford, so you thank you, hear, Doug like, Tunnell. The future is and what kind of blows my mind mm -hmm. is when we started this and we got Gamay, we could only find it on maybe less than 10 vineyards in the in the Willamette mm -hmm. Valley. I mean, it's possible there's a few more, but like that's all we could figure mm -hmm. out. Um, when we started the I Love Gamay Festival four years 16 ago, sixteen producers. It, it was sixteen producers, and there was like maybe up to fourteen or fifteen vineyards. Um, so, and we now have five different SKUs of Gamay. It represents. 40% of our overall half, production. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to the um, Oregon Wine Symposium just a few days ago and walked around and we're planting another little block on one of the vineyards we leased. And so I wanted to chat with a few of the nurseries about just availability. What are they, clone. what's the planting and, looking and like? And they all said, man, you're like the 20th person to ask about GAMA today. And we are also, every single one of them said they were sold out of GAMA yeah. through like 2022. And like, Give me your name and your number, and I'll tell you when we have it. And it's just like to hear that. It's, it's just so cool. Crazy. Come on, it's so cool. Yeah. It's great. Um, you know, uh, something I sat down. I uh, I was recently I got elected to the board of the Willamette Valley Wines Association, and I sat down in a board meeting, and I said, you know, get Pinot is always going to be king, but maybe Gamay can be prince. Yeah. So that that would be my goal, and to have Oregon Gamay be known. Uh, as a thing, mm -hmm. uh, more generally uh, in the United States, mm -hmm. that that's that's a goal too. I'm gonna fight that fight with Tom. We're gonna try to make that happen. Uh, <laughs> still, we'll keep banging the Shannon drum. Shannon's the most delicious. Shannon's the Shannon's like the one that I, I personally love drinking. So the, much. Mm -hmm. It's the one that probably makes the least sense for the Willamette Valley, though. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah, it needs a longer season. Yeah, it needs a little bit of a drier day. It needs a little yeah, bit more fog. Cycle. It needs yeah. Um, but you know, there's there's so much bright future for this region if we continue to try to do things and we get better at mm -hmm. ecological practices here and. Hopefully the rest of the world can kind of do that too, because there is something so fragile about, you know, the 
being able to grow here and in anywhere. And so, but I feel like that this area still has so much potential. It's, it's yeah, it's its story is still nowhere close to being written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be in wine for sure. In Oregon, for sure. Well, I, I actually think globally also. Yeah, I yeah. think that. But I like where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Um, no, it's exciting. You know, the, the people, more people are drinking or are curious about wine. I think wine sales was actually down last year. But I think that more and more people are talking about wine. Younger people are drinking wine. There's more accessibility more between. White claw, apparently, is why we're down. <laughs> low calorie. I saw that too. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, oh. No, but, it's, but, I, but I think that there's. Uh, there's the the upside and the potential for growth is incredible. So, yeah. so as as you look ahead for the for say for the state or for the region, what do you hope for as you for the next decade? And then maybe what are your, some of your concerns as you look ahead for the industry? What, what's on the horizon that maybe worries you a little bit? Well, I think the things that worry me a lot are about climate issues here and how we're going to manage that as these summers get. Especially more dry and intense, with you know, based on our just latitude, we're always going to have a certain ability to be cooler than. But the subtle increases, or even the not so subtle increases, create a real, a real dramatic mm -hmm. change in how we have to grow here. Um, I I feel like the the human labor component of it is going to be continually to be more challenging. Um, there is, um, you know, a, a great need to do things in a certain way that's, you know, sustainable in the vineyards and, and to have the people to be able to do that. And we have, you know, kind of put ourselves into a spot right now where that's become even more complicated. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I hope that we don't, you know, end up having to cheat the way we farm in order to to make it yeah because because we've chosen the wrong politics as a nation so and, and then we don't support the people that work so hard, hard yeah. to grow here you, you and i also talk about sort of the willamette valley diversifying itself in terms of price point too i think that's something that we're going to need to start to do um, I think that there's a way for us to make really good Pinot Noir that is not $50 a bottle and is closer to 20 without going to the valley floor, um, but while maintaining our high-end bottlings at the same time. I think that we've done a really good job at being ultra-premium, um, but I think that the future is a diversification of price point. So the really interesting thing about this is, and we cut this industry dealt with this as a big issue last year when you know certain California companies were were marketing wines that were grown in different parts of Oregon, and they kind of and they put the word Willamette on there. Because these people know that that, that Oregon has. A, brand value. Mm -hmm. Well, who built that brand value? The people that you mentioned that you talked about when you first started this project, the Sopa Blossers, the Ponzi's, you know, the Campbell's and the Rats, all of these people were the ones who, who started that. And then others who built it, the other families who were invested into this region have built it. But, you know, as something becomes more popular, People who are good at extracting economic value out of out of brands are going to naturally see an opportunity here. So what I hope is but we take our own opportunity. That we do that, and mm -hmm. then the people here. And this is Kate when we were talking about with the baton wine growing that we that that those 
that growth and that economic impact is led by Oregonians and people who are living here and invested here and that we don't cede that to large businesses that are just looking to extract seeing, money seeing mm -hmm. that they have an easy way to make a yeah. dollar what does the industry look like in 10 years oh, that's mm. well i mean <laughs> you know there's going to be probably a fair degree of like flat overall wine growth and um, we, and I think what Kate was saying is, is uh, because of some of the growing advantages we have here, that us doing a better job of diversifying our offerings can really, really help with that. I, I imagine that we will see uh, consolidation of brands, mm -hmm. but I also think that there Especially is as the boomers start as to the boomer, really yeah. But I also think that. Oregon still has that pioneering spirit and is not 100% saturated by California. So I think that we will see the smaller brand do well in this area still. I think the opportunity is still there and I think that's one of the beauties of this region is that even with consolidation it's not going to completely flatten everything. Um, so I think we'll probably see more waves like we have seen. Um, so I think you and I are fifth or sixth gen. We're down. We're down there. But there's there's waves up. There's yeah. Fourth or fifth. Fourth, yeah. But then you know, I imagine that we will see more waves, and I imagine that there's still areas to plant, and there are still small wineries that will not sell out, um, and we will see things change. But we will see some of the same too. There's going to be a, probably a. a growth boom in places like the Columbia Gorge and other parts of Oregon that have a bit better um, economic entry point. Mm -hmm. So you see Elkton probably yeah. explode, exactly. the Columbia Central River Gorge also. Mm -hmm. You know, because I mean, the Willamette Valley, it, you know, is obviously an amazing spot, it's, but it's, its entry points are harder. Uh, and so when there is the two people or three people that are 30 years old right now or going to be 30 in 10 years, you know, th they may look beyond places that don't have as many barriers entry. And I mean, that was partially for us, too, why we like, kind of said California, oh, yeah, no. us, it's like you're just battling against, you know, much larger entities. And it was still expensive 10 years ago, uh, much more expensive now. Mm -hmm. um, but Oregon's barrier to entry is lower than the other West Coast, uh, especially for the quality of lifestyle. I mean, no downer on Washington either, but... Um, but if the uh, Valley is, I think, a way cooler place to live. So, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um. So I'm sure this has happened to you at this point. This is, uh, I'm just sort of curious. Uh, if someone comes to you and asks you for words of wisdom, advice on getting into the industry, what do you, what do you um, raise tell them? twice as much money as you think you're going to need. Definitely put two doors in your winery. We only have one. We can't have two. <laughs> I mean, in general, persistence is really necessary. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not a career for somebody looking for something quick to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when you go sell real estate, if you want something, you're gonna have to you want to flip. This mm -hmm. is a this is a like a lifetime, and 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 so I I met. Um, Jean-Louis Chauve uh, in Hermitage last year for the first time and this is like a very 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 storied family that traces their winemaking 
roots back to the 11th century. And he's not that old. And he's, yeah, he's about 50 50, now. yeah, yeah. And he, um, incredibly kind guy and, you know, and, and makes a wine that is one of the most expensive and sought after wines on the planet, but very humble and, and, and he was like, he's like, I don't do this for me. This is literally like my, what we plant here is going to be my grandparent or my grandchildren's, you know, and so you have to have a bit of the mindset when you do this that, you know, you're not going to be able to accomplish like that much, but you can create something that has a legacy well beyond you. Um, I think for me, I tell people just to be true to your nature, that the the word authentic is so overused these days, but to always remember that that you should do what you think is right and people will understand and taste that. Um, And then always remember that it's to be shared. Drinking alone is called alcoholism. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no, but, but that, that it's to be shared not only in the bottles, but in the community that, that this is, um, it doesn't exist in isolation. Um, and this experience is for everybody. Um, it's for the people that grow the grapes. It's for the people that make the wine. It's for people that open the bottle. It's for the stories that go with it. Um, and if you're not into that, then it's probably not for you. It's not a, this is not a selfish existence. So you mentioned the, you mentioned the idea that you can't, you can't possibly accomplish everything. At the end of your career, as you look back, what will have been, what will make it successful? What will make you say I had a successful? I mean, in run? reality, I already feel like it's been more successful than in many ways than I thought. But then there's other ways that I feel like we still have a lot to go on. Um, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of things like we sell wine to France. You know, like something I never even considered that, that was possible. Um, I told Tom that I was going to retire right after they took their first shipment. I was like, okay, we've, we've arrived. It's done. Fortunately, we didn't have enough money But yeah, no, you know, and, and this has been a very rewarding experience in many ways. Um, but I, I, I think that, I think that now, I hope, I, I guess I used the word earlier, but I hope that we can take this brand we have in like anchor roots into it that can go beyond us. And share it even more, right? Yeah. Um, I, I would say, yeah, I would say I would feel very, you know, really excited if we, if the next phase of this the division and what we've created is something that has maybe even permanence beyond us. Mm-hmm. Um, the people around me that love me like to remind me that I've accomplished my goals. Uh, in some way, but uh, I never will feel that way, right? That's, I mean, that's how it is. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm extremely proud also of what we've done, uh, and having um, people enjoy what we make is just enough to keep, to, to give yourself confidence to keep going and to keep trying even harder. Um, there's no laurel resting. Um, and it's just not a possibility because um, because there's so much more to do, um, and it's uh, yeah. There's I think we have goals. It's funny. It's like we have these long-term goals, but then we've got to you know make sure that 
the faucet's working today too. So, <laughs> and the toilet's not clogged. But um, it's it's uh, really interesting that way to to be in charge of your own destiny in a way. Um, yeah. But I am. I'm incredibly proud of the last ten years. A decade is an accomplishment for sure. We timed this really well. I'm glad that worked out. I'm glad that worked out. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Thanks for doing it. <laughs> so with all the questions that we have that I have for you, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? No. I feel pretty good about it. I feel pretty good. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for your time today, for your stories, you. your thoughts. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I just think, I, I think what would be really kind of cool to do with this is to, you know, every five or ten years come back to this these folks and just see what's changed and mm -hmm. see how much of the things that they've thought about then are either kind of relevant or have shifted or what because this can be a living memory mm -hmm. to this region too that has more than just this one kind of place can't wait to see the wrinkles great <laughs> thank you both thank so you so much, much. Really i really appreciate, appreciate your time yeah. yeah hope that was okay Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.